Hey there, I'm Carl Thiel and we're here with Film Music Media. Uh, we're going to be talking about Seis Manos and a bunch of other fun stuff. Well, Carl, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting. Uh, it's so great to, to see you again. It's been yeah, a... likewise. It's been a minute. <laughs> it's yeah. been a minute. We did, a, we did an interview on the phone or on Skype a while ago, but it's so great yeah. to be in person. Likewise. And I know you're in Austin, so it's just great that you're in town that we can sync up like this. Well, actually, I'm now kind of bi-coastal, if you want. Oh. If, if you can call Austin a coast, yeah. right? Yeah, I think you can get uh, your own coast, sure. Right, sure. <laughs> uh, no, I just recently got a place in Burbank. That's actually what oh, I'm hearing. All right, so, we're neighbors yeah. then. That's right, okay. yeah. <laughs> Um, so let yeah let's start off let's kind of start fresh I know we talked about you know a few years ago we did that interview but let's just start and refresh I want to refresh uh, kind of your your background and your intro and and kind of re reflect back to I guess your childhood growing up and I know you had a very interesting childhood uh, I mean your parents and all this diversity kind of in your life growing up in Mexico talk about those influences and what kind of um, were the first moments you started noticing music kind of seeping into your life sure. Well, you know, <clears throat> music has always been a part of my life. Uh, you know, growing up in Mexico, um, I grew up in Mexico City, mm. and my dad was a concert pianist. Uh, and he, by the time I was born, he kind of led that life, uh, and he became a, an entrepreneur. Mm. But at home, he always played piano. So every night before dinner, you know, he'd play piano, and he'd play Mozart and uh, Bach and Beethoven. And I just was enchanted by that. By the time I was six years old, I told my mom, hey, you know, I want to play like dad. And so she got me uh, private lessons with a wonderful professor from the uh, Mexico City Conservatory. Mm. And uh, I basically started, you know, practicing classical music at six years old. Um, and I loved that. I really, really enjoyed it. I, it was very uh, fulfilling. Uh, I, I went through that for about four years, you know, practicing every day and doing that kind of thing, really disciplined. Then by the time I got to be about 11, you know, I kind of got tired of it. I kind of wanted to do my own thing. And so right. I kind of let go of the official lessons. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I kind of didn't play for a while. And within a few months, I really started missing it. Uh, and, you know, my, my sister and my brother are older than I am. And they would play, you know, Beatles albums. They, they were <laughs> playing uh, The Carpenters and things like that. Right. Um, uh, and I really enjoy that too. So I decided to start picking it up again on my own, just playing, you know, pop music. Uh, you know, so I got Beatles uh, books and I started learning that stuff. Uh, it was really fulfilled, uh, fulfilled me. And um, I also started writing just by ear. I started writing, you know, just fun pieces, short pieces for fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't really have the concept of recording or writing or anything like that. <laughs> right. I just kind of noodling on the piano, coming up with pieces that I would play with friends and they yeah. would really enjoy it. So that was fulfilling. Um, later on, you know, uh, when I was in, in high school, I went to high school in Canada, um, I, uh, I was uh, really still in love with music. I never really thought music was going to be, uh, you know, my, like a career. my career. Right. I it was, was going to be my hobby. Yeah. Know? But I always had, a, it was a big part of my life uh, throughout my whole life. So while I was in Canada, I was uh, studying the arts. I was doing a lot of painting too. And um, I also took some harmony and composition mm -hmm. in school. And uh, the music teacher actually, uh, uh, he, I convinced him to get a Rhodes uh, keyboard uh, and a couple of synthesizers. Yeah. Uh, so that we could play and uh, <laughs> formed a little high school band and you know performed a couple of dances and that was a lot of fun, really a lot of fun, uh, and and all the time thinking you know I really want to be a filmmaker, and so I was also filming and you know I had a VHS uh, camera and editing it, you know playing the cassette player and playing the you know adding the audio <laughs> and dubbing the you know, like I did that yeah crazy. I remember that. You know, so it was a lot of fun <laughs> yeah, um, so I was kind of straddling those two worlds. Uh, when I went to college, uh, I studied RTF at, at UT in Austin, mm. uh, quite coincidentally, pretty contemporarily with Robert Rodriguez, you know. Yeah. I did not know, them, know him at the time. Uh, I was familiar with uh, Los Hooligans, his, uh, his comic strip, yeah. uh, but I didn't know who he was or, uh, or what he was doing. I just kind of was familiar with his comic strip. <laughs> so that came about later in my life. Right. But uh, during that time, uh, as, you know, as I was studying uh, to be a filmmaker in my head, I started doing some internships and, uh, and PA work, uh, commercial productions that were happening around town to, uh, to learn. You know, I was uh, working as a PA on the set and, you know, uh, some t a couple of movies that were shot in Austin, I also participated. One of them was uh, 
um, the, what was it, the hot spot, the hot spot, mm -hmm. directed by Dennis Hopper. Oh, uh, with Don yeah. Johnson, uh, Virginia Over, Madsen. Right, I saw that on your IMDb. <laughs> yes, uh, I was actually a PA on that, you know, and so that was a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, throughout all that process, I got to meet all the people that were, you know, the, the directors and the producers that were making decisions as to who was going to do the music for these commercials yeah. at first, you know. And so it dawned on me, you know, because I was playing with bands and I was buying little recording equipment. I had a four track, I had a synthesizer. And it dawned on me, it's like, you know, I could, I could write music for this kind of stuff, you know, this would be fun. And so I made this little demo reel on a cassette, four uh -huh. track, you know, uh, of fake commercials, radio commercials. Yeah. And I wrote music to them, I scored them. Mm. And so uh, I passed that around to a lot of the different people that I had met. And eventually I got a break. Uh, you know, one of these companies, uh, you know, they were looking for a composer and they asked me, it's like, you want to try this out? And I'm like, of course, that'd be great. <laughs> and it was a really low budget pro project. You know, it was a 30 second commercial for one of those 1-900 calls, you know, <laughs> aired overnight, you know. But, uh, oh, the sexy calls? Yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I didn't use a Wawa, you know, <laughs> but it, it could have very well been one of those, yeah. right? But uh, so, and it, I got paid very little, yeah. but it was the first time that somebody actually paid me money to write music. Wow. And that was very fulfilling, you know, and then I, when I saw it on TV, I was like, there it is, that's my music, and I heard it, I was like hooked. That's this amazing. is awesome, this is so cool. Yeah. So I kept doing it, that company kept hiring me, they were happy with what I had done, so they, they did more of that, and that opened the door to more reputable uh, agencies. You know, I worked a lot with GSENM, which is one of the bigger agencies that just happens to be in Austin. We did a lot of Walmarts at the time, mm -hmm. uh, uh, with the Texas Lottery, I, we won the account you know, with a jingle that I wrote. That's right, um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, after that, you know, I did some Subaru commercials, some uh, Volkswagen commercials, you know. And that was a, a great, uh, great education for me because, you know, those turnarounds are usually very quickly, very quick. You yeah. know, you have to do these things, you know, within 24 hours. And not only was I, uh, did it, was it a good education into how to be creative uh, on, on demand, it was also a great, uh, exercise in being flexible create creatively. You right. know, because one day they'll want a, a ranchera for a, a beer commercial, and the next day they'll want, uh, you know, an orchestral piece for a car commercial. Right. And so, you know, I would never say no. Uh, I would always say, yes, of course I know how to do that. Right. And immediately after hanging up, it's like, how do you do that? Yeah, right? you say yes, and then you figure it out. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so that was a great education, you know, which I found later was very useful in, you know, scoring uh, longer format stuff. And it also opened the door to, uh, you know, more corporate videos. Right, right. Uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, um, short documentaries. And eventually, you know, I started doing, dabbled in producing mu music for for l a larger uh, feature film. So I did a couple of things with Lysander Bullock in the early 2000s. Yeah. Because um, you worked on like Miss Congeniality. Miss Congeniality. Yeah. I produced one of the tracks that was uh, that was featured in there, mm. and that was that was great. You know, yeah. and uh, Sandy was awesome. She was, you know, such a wonderful human being. Um, and then I, I met Robert uh, just by chance. Yeah, uh, I met him at uh, at, a, at Anton's, which is a great bar, very well known uh, blues bar in Austin, and I was there just visiting. You know, one of my hangouts really. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, watching this performer was Patricia Vaughn. Uh, who later I found out was Robert's sister. <laughs> and so I saw in the distance, hey, is that Robert? And it's like, Robert's like, like, I gotta go talk to him. And he had just, uh, you know, Spike It's One had just been released. Yeah. And I had seen it with my son, who was at the time about five or six. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I approached him and it's like, hey, you're Robert, right? And I'm like, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and I told him, it's like, hey, you know, I love, my, my son and I really love Spike It's. Uh, he goes, oh, thank you. You know, I, and I didn't really want to gush or anything. Yeah, you right. Know, I just kind of wanted to give him his props. Yeah. Uh, well, later that evening, right around that time, you know, a, a few, a, like I had just released a, a, an album that I produced uh, for uh, Monty Montgomery, who's a fantastic guitar player. He's yeah, yeah. Really a virtuoso. Um, and I was upstairs in the green room, and the label guy from that record was talking to Robert, and he looked at me and he was like, Oh, Robert, you got to meet Carl. You know, he's got an amazing studio, and he just did Monty Montgomery's record, and he did Bob Schneider's Lonely Land record. You, you guys need to meet, meet each other. And he was like, Hey, we just met downstairs, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, yeah, I'm looking for a studio to do work here. And I'm like, Really? Well, you know, here's my number. And it's like, Yeah, that'd be great. I never thought he'd call. <laughs> right. 
And uh, within two weeks, I get a call. It's like, hey, this is Rodriguez. <laughs> and I'm in my studio. It's like, Rodriguez? Could be Robert Rodriguez? You know? It's like, yeah, I want to come check out your studio. And I'm like, uh, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm here. Come on. And, you know, 15 minutes later, open the door. There he is. Wow. So, and uh, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm doing this Spy Kids 2. You know, I want to do this, uh, uh, the end credits track. You know, he basically just gave me, uh, here's the, the, here's kind of the melody of it. Let's put it together. Yeah. So we worked together on it. I produced it. We brought, brought in uh, Alexa Vega to sing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was the first time we collaborated on something. And that opened the door to pretty much everything he's done since yeah, then. Yeah, since then on. you were so on, yeah. First uh, producing his music. And, you know, as, as we did a couple of movies, you know, told me, you know, I also write. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's like, oh, here's a couple of cues. Try those, you know. Yeah, yeah. And slowly he started giving me more uh, responsibility on the writing side. Right. To the point where when we got to Spike It's Four... Uh, and shorts and, and machete kills and machete. I ended up writing a lot of the music. Yeah, you guys were essentially co-composing. Exactly, with yeah. exactly. And you know, it's also partly you know he started getting a lot busier. Yeah. So lucky for me, you know, he's too busy to write a lot, so I get to carry a little bit more of that weight. Yeah. And, and it was great education for me. You know, Robert uh, is very generous with his time when working together, and I learned a lot from him, and I still learn every time I work with him. You know, so. I'm very grateful for that relationship. Yeah. And that, of course, has opened the door to a lot of the, uh, other projects. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was your, your path to, to kind of bring you up almost up to speed. But uh, let's rewind a little bit because um, uh, I'm just kind of, I'm really fascinated because you have, your, your parents are not, were not born in Mexico. Right. Yeah, your parents are both European and different right. na nationalities, right? One yes, is... that's right. My dad was Swedish. Uh, he was born and raised in Sweden. Mm -hmm. He came uh, to Mexico as an adult. Uh, my mom was born in Mexico, but her parents immigrated Mexico, okay. to Mexico. Her her dad was uh, Austrian and her mom was German. So it's a and I was born in Mexico. You yeah, know, we spoke Spanish. Right, uh, it's our first language. My parents would speak in Swedish whenever they didn't want us to understand what they were saying. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's a very very mixed. Uh, you know, it's a it's a mixed salad of yeah. Because uh, I grew up, my dad is Turkish, my mom is Polish, and uh -huh. then I grew up here, so it's kind of like yeah. You, but I think from that, you gain so much perspective and different yes. viewpoints. And I know my parents' different music tastes have influenced my tastes. Right. And then if you're growing up in Mexico, where music is such a huge part of the culture, right? So I guess t when did you start realizing what your I guess I, your musical identity was? Like how did like. I I think I'm still finding that. Still finding that? And, you know, I, I, I try not to get pigeonholed in a particular style. You yeah. know, I, I feel like I want, every time I work on a new project, I want to try and bring in new, a new perspective to it, either by getting a new instrument that I've never played before just to learn that or learning new modes or new chord progressions and things right. like that. But, uh, but to your point, yes, growing up in Mexico was an a, a incredible gift uh, musically. Yeah. Because there's so much... Uh, you know, so much music everywhere you turn, you know, and, and it's, it's a cultural uh, melting pot. Yeah, yeah. You have, you know, the indigenous music from, you know, ancient, the ancient Aztecs and Mayans, you know, and there's, that's still being played today. Um, and then you have the, uh, the imports uh, from Spain, you know, the Spanish guitars, and then the German influence with the accordions and the, and the mariachis, which are influenced by the French. So all of that, you know, you have all these different cultures basically blending into these new modes of music that right. are now considered Mexican music. Um, and then on top of that, the classical stuff that I learned from my dad and the, you know, yeah, yeah. And the, you know my mom would listen to Vivaldi all the time and Strauss, <laughs> she was a big fan of the, of the waltzes. <laughs> right. And so we, I would listen to those all the time growing up, uh, you know, so, and my, my brother and my sister, you know, going more for the pop route, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. listening to, uh, you know, what was out at the time, you know, Chicago and uh, Carpenters, as we said, the yeah. of course. Uh, and I love that. So. So, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, you, you had your upbringing there, and then you mentioned, of course, you went to high school in Canada, and right. then uh, coming uh, for college in Austin. Was that um, change of scenery, I mean, that's a big change of scenery, was, yeah. that, was that drastic for you? Did you handle that well, like, or was it more intimidating? Or? Going to Canada was the, the most challenging thing I've had to uh, encounter, yeah. uh, but it was also the best thing that I, that's ever happened to me, uh, you know, because I, I grew up in Mexico with a, in the same school from kindergarten all the way to middle school mm -hmm. with the same friends, the same group of people, you know, and it was a co-ed school. So having had that experience all my formative years with this 
poor group of people, then all of a sudden I'm in a boarding school, right. uh, you know, in a, in a completely different culture. There's no girls. Yeah. I'm in a tiny town where there's nothing to do but be in the school and you can't leave. I'm <laughs> yeah. boarding in there, you know. And right. so let's put it this way. In Mexico, I was kind of the popular clown you know, see average student, right? right? In Canada, it's like, well, I don't have any distractions. There's no girls, there's nothing else to do. So I kind of became an A student. I was really, I got really into, into the studies. Mm. And I also, uh, the, uh, you know, I really wanted to explore the arts. The, the, the school that I was going to in Mexico did not have that much in the art department, either arts or music, you know, there was, we took music classes, but they were like, eh. Yeah. And, you know, the arts was also kind of, you know, secondary. Right. But in Canada, there was a whole arts building. And they had a whole section just for for painting and drawing and sculpture and everything you could possibly imagine. And in the music department, they had a whole set. They had like five piano uh, practice rooms. You know, they had a concert. You had an actual orchestra room. So it was much more equipped to, to educate in, mm -hmm. the, in the arts. And... I became, you know, just de devoted to those. Uh, yeah. So much so that the both the music and the art teacher gave me the keys to the rooms. It's like, come in and do whenever you want, whenever you want. <laughs> and the cool thing about this school is that they had the system that the better your grades, the more freedom they gave you. So It's a good reward for students. Exactly. Yeah, that's a way exactly. to entice students, yeah. So when I was there, uh, you know, uh, uh, since I was getting such good grades, they just, you know, I didn't have to you know, be restricted to my room and during study hours or anything like that. So yeah. I would go to the, you know, either the art room to paint or I'd go to the piano rooms to practice. You know, since I had the keys, I could do that. Yeah. And so I really developed my skills as a, as a musician uh, by, by being there and also writing music. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, after you, and you moved to Austin, Austin has a huge music scene, of yes. course. It still is. It's still known as a kind of hit for its music. Right. Um, so when you started working with Robert and you kind of got more into the filmmaking process, uh, I guess talk about your how you collaborate with him. I mean, he's a filmmaker, but he's also a musician. Right. You kind of came from a filmmaking background and also... Right. So you guys have so much in common. Mm -hmm. So was it just easy to talk to him in terms of visuals and trying to capture things? Yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, I've shot a couple of short videos. I've done uh, some music videos too, you mm -hmm. know, and every time I have something, you know, I'll show it to him and he'll give me his pointers. Like, yeah, this is great, but maybe try try changing the uh, or the voiceover over here. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. it just gives me tips. This is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of, 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 uh, of the music, you know, he's really a Renaissance man. Yeah. Like, he is the, I mean, literally, uh, he... He would do everything himself if he could. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, he, and he'd be awesome. Those first few films he did do everything Exactly. exactly. Well, you know, the first one, you know. Uh, El Mariachi. Mariachi. of course. Of course, yeah. Uh, that's the example they will use. Um, and he has a great book, uh, Rebel Without a Crew, right. which I read when I was in film school. So yeah, it's yeah. everyone should read that. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. It, <laughs> it's a great lesson in, in you know, overcoming, uh, you know, yeah. obstacles. Right. Um, you know, if, if anybody tells him no, he proves them wrong. Right. right. <laughs> and so I learned a lot from that too. His yeah. out, of, out of, you know, outside the box thinking, you know, you know, Austin is not really a film town per se. It's kind right. of become now a, a little, little bit, bit more because of Robert. Because of him, the efforts yeah, yeah. of Robert and Richard Linklater and Terrence Malick. Yeah. Now people are like, oh yeah, we can respect what they're doing there. Um, but Robert's been very, uh, very adamant about doing as much as possible there, including post-production. Right. You know, he has his own uh, soundstage to mix his own uh, movies, and he was a pioneer in digital uh, filmmaking. Oh, you yeah. Know, uh, the Desperado, no, Once Upon a Time in Mexico was... It's one of the first ones shot digital. First one shot in digital. Yeah. And he was proving to people, it's like, hey, we can do it, and it looks great. Yeah. Right? And to be able to have the feedback on set to show the actors exactly how it's going to look, rather than, oh yeah, here's the, the video playback. Yeah, you know? we have to develop and then, you yeah, know. Right, exactly. <laughs> they get to see it and, oh my God, yeah, let's do it again. And they get more of a feedback, direct feedback from, from the look. Right. From the actual look. And so that was exciting, you know. And um, as far as the, the music conversation, it's, we kind of developed obviously a shorthand, you know, after you work with somebody for a, for a long period of time, I, I'm familiar with, with his tastes. I'm familiar with what he's looking for. Um, and so the cool thing is when I send him demos of, of, you know, cues or whatever, he'll say, he'll speak to me in musical terms, 
you know, rather than colors or uh, yeah. or emotions, right? Yeah. He'll say, well, let's go to a minor over here or, you know, let's let's cut the bridge or whatever, you know, and in terms that I can understand clearly and, and concise. And he's really a good director at that, about that, yeah. you know, and I can see he translates that obviously when he directs uh, actors as well. He's very specific about his direction. If you're paying mm -hmm. attention and follow that direction, you know, you get exactly what he wants. And uh, when you guys are on those co-composed co uh, collaborations, uh, is, it, is, he, is he in the room with you when you guys are writing? Or does he, I don't know when, he, when he's doing his directing duties, he just kind of leave it to you to kind of figure things out? Yeah, most of the time. In the beginning, we did do a little bit more in the room kind yeah. of thing, you know. Now it's more, I show up at his house, he shows me the cut, you know, if it's a film or whatever, right. you know, and he'll show me the scenes he wants me to work on and, and he will just take notes, basically a spotting session. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's like a mini spot, a private spotting session. <laughs> and then I'll go home and work, you know, and if he has themes that he's written, you know, he'll send me a, a you know, a one-liner, you know, mm -hmm. this is the basic melody, uh, use this in the scene, right? And so then out of that, I'll, I'll draw what needs to work, you know, and, you know, uh, block out the scene using those motifs. Yeah. And so that's kind of how it works. And now, right. you know, with the internet, you know, we hardly ever see each other anymore. You know, <laughs> right. it's all, it's all Skype yeah, and all exactly. that. Yeah. Even though we're 20 minutes apart, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you work with a lot of, uh, you work with a lot of amazing filmmakers uh, that really kind of push the boundaries of imagination and with, and there's a great comment. I mean, the kind of batshit insane qualities that's uh, just really creative and just entertaining for the audience. Um, so when you're working with Robert, who's pushing, these different genres, whether it's film noir with, you know, Sin City or a horror grindhouse with Planet Terror. I mean, how do you kind of find that? What's the goal of finding the sound or what's the approach to finding the sound? Well, yeah, fine. You mentioned that uh, when when we're working on Planet Terror, you know, he's a big fan of John Carpenter. Uh, he's always been. And yeah. so he referenced the fog and he referenced the escape from New York. Yeah. He says, we want to make it sound like this. Yeah. And so I did my research or I listened to the scores for those two. And, you know, at the time, we, you know, Arturia was starting to make some really cool plugins that, were, you know, I, I researched exactly the synthesizers that, that John Carpenter was using for those. Oh, nice. And so I got the uh, the plugin versions of those, and, yeah. you know, the Prophet uh, 5 and the uh, Mini Moog and a couple others, <laughs> you know, and just started toying with that, looking for that and really analyzed his scores and kind of see what made him work so well, you know, and so that's how I, I approached that particular score. Because he wanted to make a kind of an homage to that kind of yeah. style, obviously, yeah. you know. And so uh, when we did Sin City 2, uh, you know, I had the benefit of already having had the Sin City 1 with the wonderful scores from, uh, you know, John Debney and, uh, uh, and Robert there. and Graham Ravel. Yeah. Uh, and the cool thing about that particular movie, the original, is that they each kind of tackled a different story. That's right. Different so they each yeah. had their own style, you know. Right. Graham Revelle went for a little bit more of a of a modern, you know, uh, psycho type of approach, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and John Debney went for a more classic uh, film noir. Right. And so having had those established in the first one, we kind of wanted to pay homage to those in the second one. And so I already kind of had that baseline mm. as far as what sound we were looking for. We created new themes for, for the new characters and, you know, I, I borrowed some of the original uh, uh, motifs for, for the recurring characters. Yeah. Um, so that was not that complicated. Right. Uh, yeah, we, yeah. We, we also only had about five weeks to put that one together so that we oh, wow. had a pretty quick turnaround. That's crazy. So it's cool to be able to have that uh, as a subset, I mean, as a, as a, as a uh, foundation yeah. to build up on top. Right. Um, as far as the other stuff, uh, I can't remember what else you mentioned. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, you mentioned Planet Terror, but then you have like Machete Kills. And then... Oh, Machete Kills. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Machete Kills was born in Planet Terror. In, in, That's in, true. In the House, you know. Yeah. Was, he was, it was just originally that a trailer, you know, a joke trailer, trailer. For a joke trailer, exactly. Yeah. And it was a piece that Tito Larriba had written, yeah. uh, you know, uh, for that trailer. And Robert liked that so much. It's like when we actually did the actual score, it's like we actually used that as the main theme for, for Machete. Yeah. Um, and that was a little bit of a trial and error. You know, we, wanted, we definitely wanted to be a guitar heavy yeah. uh, theme for, for uh, Danny Trejo's character. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and so at first when I started writing that, uh, you know, playing with, with the first couple of cues, you know, Robert had written the motif, da da da, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of the signature motif for Machete. So <laughs> when I was playing it, you know, I was showing some cues to Robert. It's like, what do you think of this? It's like, no, it's got to be lower. It's got to be lower, you know? 
who's playing the guitar. It's like, well, okay, let me tune it down, you know, tune it down, <laughs> try this. Uh, you know, it's got to be lower, it's got to be lower. So I try to... Uh, I tried a baritone guitar, right? You know, and I played it like that, you know, like three steps lower. Can we try a little lower? So I tuned down the the uh, the baritone guitar to the lowest it possibly go. Right. Like, yeah, that's it, that's it. You know? So it's like the guitar the, the strings were barely, you know, tight enough to play. But that's the sound of, of Danny Trejo, like really low. And yeah, yeah. of course on top of that. He's got the machete, so I wanted to make it sound real metallic. So I had yeah. a lot of cymbals and a lot of swishes that have that kind of metallic feel to them mm. uh, to have that vibe, you know. And I started adding some synthesizers that had an organic feel to them. And I was always looking for sounds that kind of had that uh, grindhouse vibe, but also had kind of a signature feel that wasn't overly used prior, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, right now we have such a wealth of amazing synthesizers and software synthesizers that are available to us. You can start with a stock sound and then modify it and, you know, customize it to make it just right for what right. you need. You know? right. And that's, that's kind of how the whole sound of uh, Machete came about. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you did From Dust Hold On, the TV series, yeah. which you kind of like just took on your own, of course, mm -hmm. based on the original film. Um, right. Uh, talk about, I mean, you also work on um, a little bit with uh, Monty Montgomery on Last Man Standing. Last anyway. So did a few, uh, you know, work on that. So talk about scoring for a television series. Well, you can focus on From Just Till Dawn, but yeah. completely different than a 30-minute sitcom. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. But talk about, you know, we, we so people will remember the film, of course, but yeah. you're bringing it to also to a new generation. It was also right. launching the El Rey Network. Exactly. Um, so Robert, uh, you know, was a kind of showrunner, produced it and directed a few episodes. What mm. was it like building that soundscape, I guess? Was it... Were you borrowing from the film or did you try to do something completely different? Well, that's a great question. I, I did listen to the first film, I mean, the original film, yeah. uh, to kind of see if there was anything we could borrow from mm. that. And I tried kind of getting that approach. You know, the first half of that film is mostly uh, like uh, source music, yeah. songs, licensed music. And then it goes into orchestral, uh, the second half, when we get to the vampire section. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I tried kind of going with a rock and roll vibe, you know, and doing kind of a thing, you know. We, there was like a couple of scenes, like the, the first scene that I tried, the, that we kind of started testing was the, when he goes with, the, the, the scene where he goes like, you be cool, right? Yeah. That whole section. And uh, I tried first with like a groove, like a rock groove, and you know, it was sounding cool, and it, it actually worked. But when, uh, when Robert and I were discussing it, you know, there's something missing, it's not tense enough, you know? Mm. It's, it's, it's too familiar, yeah. really. And so he wanted the, the biggest part of his direction is like, I want to add tension and, and unease. Mm. Uh, I want the music to always be tense and unease. And so in order to do that, the minute you put some kind of melody, even if it's a dark melody, people kind of get attached to that and it becomes uh, comforting. It is, yeah. You know? And so I decided, well, let's get rid of the melody. Let's just make it more rhythmic and tonal. Mm. And I try that with still keeping it organic, you know, doing, you know, guitar swells and doing yeah. that kind of thing mixed in with the synthesizers and, and just putting like a really uh, kind of an organic electronic beat to it. And I showed that to Robert, like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, we're going to go with that. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of the first template of what direction we're going to go with the score. Yeah. 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 And we built on that. And of course the, you know, the, the, the seasons evolved, you know, the first season takes place, I mean, the whole movie takes place th the whole season, first season. Right. And then we take off into different worlds and different uh, uh, unexplored territory. And so we, we took some more liberties with the score as well as the, as the story evolved. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, it was three seasons. Uh, right. Is there any chance we'll come back for a fourth one? Is there... You know, I have heard rumors. It comes and goes. Because it was know, never announced as a cancellation. It was just kind no, of, yeah. right. Yeah. So there's... Yeah. It, no, it, the last time I talked to Robert about it, and this was last year, you know, he was yeah. yeah, you know, we might do a, a little reunion. That'd be good to come back. Yeah, yeah maybe exactly. like. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it got really great reviews and yeah. fans loved it. So it was a lot of It's a fun show. Yeah, yeah so much fun. Good Just like the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's jump to Seis Manos, which, you know, we've been talking about all these different multicultural diversity and, you know, kind of how you shaped yourself and no better show that kind of represents a mixing of so many different genres and, yeah. and stuff as Seis Manos. So, I mean, so Seis Manos is, uh, hails from creators, you know, Brad Graber and uh, Alvaro Rodriguez. So Alvaro is uh, Robert's cousin, right? Yes, exactly. Yes, so. And he wrote Machete. Yeah, he did write Machete as well. So um, 
talk about, I guess, being approached for this. Um, I'm, I'm guessing Alvaro probably reached out to you. Uh, or how did you get involved with this? No, actually, I mean, if, if funny enough, I had done some work with uh, Powerhouse before. Yeah, Powerhouse, Powerhouse, uh, Powerhouse know, Animation. Brad Powerhouse Animation. Uh, Brad Graver, who's the CEO and, and the creator, of, as you mentioned, uh, of uh, Seis Manos. I had done some work with, uh, with them in the past, about 10, 15 years ago, mm. mid-2000s. Mid a good friend of mine, uh, Trevor Romain, who's a children's book author. Yes, yeah. Uh, he uh, he does wonderful work for kids. Uh, you know, he really tackles very difficult subjects. You know, cancer and death, and uh, and writes these amazing books that are uh, that are meant to bridge the gap between you know communication between parents and kids to be able to have those you know open up the door to those conversations. Mm. And so, at one point, those were made into short videos, and Powerhouse was the uh, the company that did those. Mm. And so, I, I scored them. Uh, thanks to Trevor, and uh, that was my first introduction to Powerhouse. Right. So when Brad had this vision for Seis Manos, he uh, he invited me to score that. Um, and it was actually, I, I was the one who introduced uh, Alvaro to... Oh, Brad. really? It was like yeah. you brought Alvaro on board. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, because Brad was like, you know, I really have this awesome vision for this incredible show. He had the whole concept of it, you mm. know, and... and it sounded incredible, you know, three orphans that are Mexican that are adopted by a Chinese kung fu master. Because how does one come up with? <laughs> well, it's just I don't yeah. know. You gotta ask that, Brad. that imagination Brad again. Imagination that's so you know. Right? Yeah, but you know, Brad is uh, himself a martial artist. He's a black belt. Oh wow, he's yeah, an incredible student of the martial arts. And 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 this is a, an important note. Every uh, martial arts move in the in the animation in the sh in the show. Is very carefully, meticulously crafted to mm. to reflect the actual style of that particular uh, character. Wow! So, if anybody wants to learn martial arts, watch Seis Manos. <laughs> you can learn through animation. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, the, he his sifu came in, and then they actually worked out the moves and how they were going to wow. fight. And so, each character has a different fighting style, and uh, and they're very very true to that particular discipline. So that's a little side note that you yeah. need to know. Yeah. <laughs> but um, back to what we're talking about, that's how I was introduced to, to the show. You know, right. Brad invited me to score it. And we did a, we did a preliminary uh, proof of concept a few years ago for it. And it was only about a minute long. And I wrote, you know, I scored it. It was just kind of an action sequence. Mm -hmm. There was really no theme or anything like that. You just needed a score to go with it. Uh, and a, a kind of a funny... Uh, Funny bit about that is when, when I wrote that, you know, I had this little motif da 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 da. That just kind of happened, incidentally. It was just kind of in passing little motif that yeah. was part of the, the scene, and I didn't think anything about. It. I didn't think of it as a thematic, you know, uh, thought or anything like that. Right. And uh, later, when we when the show got green lit, and I actually was tasked with actually writing a proper theme. I went back to listen to the original demo that I, that we did for that little action scene, and you know the uh, the characters had evolved. The, the story was a little bit different. The aesthetic was different. Mm -hmm. So that kind of vibe that I had written for the original demo didn't really fit the new look and the new characters. You know, like uh, Jesus is a little chubbier. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a little bit more. Uh, uh, I think they're more relatable characters, honestly. Yeah. You know, before they were a little too fantasy looking. Um, and so I had to rewrite the whole thing from scratch. But that little uh -huh. motif, that ta 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 da da, really stuck with me. And it's like, well, I'm going to try building on that. Uh -huh. I'm going to write the whole. I'm going to kind of orchestrate the whole thing and, and write the piece based on that motif. And so is the theme that you heard earlier. Yeah, in the main the main yeah, titles. Exactly. And so uh, I started with that, the flute at the top, and I decided, well, how can I blend Chinese and Mexican music? You know, because that was the basic two big elements yeah. that I need to put in. But we also got to make it sound like it's coming from the 70s. And it also has to have kind of a black exploitation vibe. Yeah, it has it's an all these elements. It has to be yeah. action, you know, all these things. <laughs> yeah. And so I decided to try that motif on over like a wapango beat, which is a 6-8, right? Yeah. And an up-tempo thing. And with Western chord, Western chord progression, you know, and moving, moving chords. And, and then I had, you know, an acoustic nylon guitar, uh, nylon acoustic um, to kind of give it that propulsion, uh, propulsion. Yeah, yeah. And but let's do kind of like taiko drums playing in the background, and uh, 
Uh, oh, let's add a wah-wah guitar so that it'll have a 70s vibe. Uh, or let's put some mariachi trumpets, you know, and, oh, but let's, let's make the trumpets uh, with, with Chinese harmonies, right? <laughs> so you have all these different, uh, I'm borrowing all these different musical elements from the different cultures. Yeah. And it just blended so magically, beautifully. It I just did. It, like, it really it works. Really works. Yeah, you know, so... Um, it doesn't feel, really yeah, it doesn't feel like a, a mess or anything. It just all seamlessly works right yeah so i was really happy the way that came up uh, came together yeah. yeah so yeah so yeah we just we're talking about the series and it has all these different elements so alvaro i was, I was reading something that he was uh, saying in, in some press and he said that the series can be described as machete meets kill bill on the set of coco <laughs> is that accurate <laughs> i would say that's pretty accurate so yes. yeah talk what well, yeah we mentioned it was about three orphans martial arts masters but tell us the kind of premise of the story well you know we 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 enter the story when the the orphans are already adults, right? They're young adults. They're, right. I would say maybe seventeen to nineteen, right? And they're not necessarily they're not really siblings uh, by blood. Mm. They're siblings because they're adopted by the Chinese kung fu master, right? right. And so that that takes place in Mexico. It takes place in, in a, a small town, fictional, in a fictional small yeah. town in Mexico in the seventies. Yes. And so we end, we we start the story when they're already at that age, and uh, they're already martial artists. They've learned that, and and we see them. Uh, learning from the teacher the the art of the sin also mm. you know so it's the yin and the yang you know yes they're they're martial arts but the martial arts are part of the life but also the spiritual and meditative uh, 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 practices are also important in, in their uh, education and so um, you know we have three very different characters you know uh, Isabella who's the, the the leader and moral compass of the three uh, who's uh, a wonderful character, yeah. uh, uh, played by Aisling Derbez, you know, and she did a fantastic job. Um, we have Jesus, uh, who's kind of the drunken, cheery guy, he just wants everybody to get along. Yeah, He's a great, yeah. great character. And, uh, and we have Silencio, who carries a lot of resentment from something that happened in his childhood. Mm. And he's called Silencio because he doesn't speak. Uh, and we'll later find out why. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't want to give out any spoilers. All right. Um, but um, so we, we start kind of getting to know these characters uh, through the eyes of Domingo, who's a child that wants to be a, a, a Kung Fu warrior. Mm. Uh, and he visits them and, you know, learns how they live. And uh, that's how the story starts. Wow. And I don't want to give up anything. Yeah, I don't want to give too much yeah, away. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, you'll catch it on Netflix on October exactly. 3rd. So. Yeah. Um, but the so I, I work in, in TV animation as well. Mm -hmm. So you know it's a very kids animation different, completely right. different. Yes. <laughs> um, Cartoon Network is where I where I work at. But we know we do, we produce adult series too, like Samurai Jack and Primal. We have a new one coming out, very graphic for Adult Swim. But talk about the process of, uh, for working with animation. Um, mm -hmm. When do you the, the the first series only just eight episodes though, yes. right? So mm -hmm. um, did you tackle them all at once? Was it just kind of a consecutive like okay? And do you jump in at like animatic stage, lock picture stage? Like yeah. when do you kind of jump in? I was fortunate that you know I was able to start at the, at the animatic stage. Okay. And I wanted to this. I wanted this to be a really organic score. You know, I wanted. We're paying homage to a lot of uh, genres from the seventies. Right. And I think it would have been a great disservice if I had made an electronic score. Right. Yeah. So, the the, the wonderful gift that Powerhouse Animation and Netflix and Biz Media gave me was that they just gave me free reign. They said, you know, we want you to do whatever you want to do with this. You know, have at it. Yeah. And so I I, I took the rain. I, I took the lead for that, and um, I. Uh, actually recorded a 26-piece string orchestra for the Weird Cues in Budapest, and uh, we brought in a lot of wonderful performers to, to do the solo parts. Uh, Tina Guo is featured in uh, a oh. few of the cues. Yeah, I love Tina. She's fantastic, yeah. you know. Uh, she played Eru in a couple of things, and she played cello in a couple of things, and it's just awesome. You just elevated the score, right? Yeah. And so I was lucky in, in the fact that, yes, they let me start working uh, through the animatic process. And so I was able to start, you know, kind of, doing some demos uh, in the early stages. For those who don't know, animatics is basically like a moving storyboard. Yeah. And uh, uh, and the first thing that happens in animation is you record the voices. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that either. No, yeah, yeah so it's true. You, re you record the voices, and the timing is is very close to what's going to be in the end, right? So you... you and uh, when you see the animatics, you kind of get a sense of the flow of the story. You hear the voices. You kind of get the sense of how the scene is blocked. And so it's a good place to start, you know, doing some sketching mm. for music. 
And so what I tackled, what I made a decision is I'm going to write all the, the bigger cues for, for these moments that I want to do the orchestral stuff for. Okay. And um, I had, looking at the schedule, we had only about three weeks between, which later ended up being more like two weeks, but we only had about three weeks between when I, when I got the last episode's animatic and the first episode's mix. Mm, so wow. I had a short window of time to write the last few cues for the last episode and and when I had to turn in the first episode right wow. so and I wanted to record orchestra for all of them yeah and you know we had didn't have an unlimited budget so we only had a chance to record two days of orchestra right four four sessions and uh, so uh I had to work quickly the very last time the very last and and, and also was taking chances because you know Cues change, right? You know, yeah, the, yeah. the scenes change from the animatic to the final. But I, I wrote the cues with that in mind, knowing that I'm going to have to edit sections. Mm. You know, so I would I would give myself that flexibility as as a composer. I would write the cues in a way that they could be trimmed here and there or extended if I needed, uh, knowing that that was going to be the case. Absolutely. And so, um, and I also wrote cues that would that would that would be malleable. You know, especially moments or orchestral moments that could be dropped into different cues, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. So, so um, when we recorded the orchestra, I had all that in there. Uh, Nicholas Dodd, uh, who's a fantastic orchestrator, uh, we become really good friends. He helped me uh, put together the orchestration, uh, and uh, he conducted the orchestra, and it came up wonderful. It was beautiful. We were able to record everything we wanted, which is. <laughs> Amazing. You know? What does it feel? I mean, that hearing that music come to life, that must have been amazing. Oh, it's, thing it's for you. Incredibly to... rewarding. I mean, yeah. I, I still get chills every time that I walk into the re, into the control room and I hear the orchestra starting to rehearse yeah. something that I've written. It's like, <gasps> yeah, oh, it's so cool. <laughs> it's awesome. It's an amazing feeling. Yeah. It's so rewarding. You know. Yeah, yeah. And then when they get it together and they're really, you know, playing as a as as a as a band and they're you know, really working with the dynamics and you feel the emotion that they're conveying. It's, it's, it's irreplaceable. It's wonderful. It's it. yeah. yeah. I mean, live players bring so much that can't be replicated. It's just that, that emotion that comes through is incredible. Exactly. exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we mentioned that Brad says the fight scenes were very important and he, yeah. being that's kind of his specialty. He wanted to make sure they're very accurate. And mm-hmm. um, do you, is there a, a trick to scoring a fight scene? Is there like a, do you treat the scene almost like its own three-act thing? Is there like a, a build to what a fight scene is in this in this series? I, I, with the fights, I, I really let the the images dictate the timing and the pacing of it. Mm-hmm. You know, once I get the the, uh, the 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 cut of it, you know, even after I have the sketches, you know, when I we did I did some a little bit of fighting and during the animatics. Okay. But I really fine-tuned them obviously when I got the final animation because those are right, the ones yeah. that change the most. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, you know, a lot of times, depending on the fighting scene, sometimes the, the fight only takes 30 seconds, right? right? And so that's the amount of time you have to build it and to make it work. And depending what's happening on, on, the, on the scene, you know, that detects what you're going to do musically. I try to cater to the emotional content that was happening, right? Mm-hmm. Are, they, are they losing? Are they winning? Is this, a li- you know, life-threatening? Or is they, are they just kind of sparring, right? right? Right, All these things dictate how much depth you're going to give the music it's not just rhythms right it's not just yeah not the pacing of the exactly. action right which you know it, it works if you want to just put a rhythm in it but if you yeah. really want to make it you know engaging you got to add the emotional uh, background to it so it's important to the mu- for the mu- for me for the music to tell part of the story as well yeah what's happening here you know at what point are they are, are they turning uh you know are they winning are they losing you know uh, are they fearing for their their siblings' lives? Right. You know, things like that. <laughs> and it, at, at times, it's comical. You know, the, the way that these these guys fight, particularly Jesus. You know, Jesus <laughs> is the comic relief of, of the show. And so, right. whenever he's fighting, he's doing something funny. Yeah. Uh, not always, but a lot of times. So right. I try to accent that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so another thing that Seis Manos is doing, which I think is really cool, um, is when it's being released on Netflix, it'll be simultaneously available in English and Spanish right. dialogue, um, uh, audio, which we actually just did recently with our series, Victor and Valentino Cartoon Network. Just, you know, what, what does it mean to be part of a series that's kind of like representing a culture and a demographic that usually is not represented in mainstream media? Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I think it's slowly turning. That's slowly turning. And yeah. I'm really grateful for that. You know, this particular show, it's awesome in the fact they have three Hispanic protagonists, right? Yeah. And they're the heroes of the story. And not only that, but they have a female leader. 
Yeah. And so having a Hispanic female leader, it's, it's unusual. And I think it's really cool. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good milestone for representing the Hispanic community. Um, and I'm proud to be part of that, especially yeah. as you know, if, you know, having grown in Mexico. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so kind of uh, pulling back a little bit and just talking about your general approach. Um, we talked about different projects and your different processes, but is there, uh, I would like to ask composer, where does the first note come from? Is there a process, do you, do you kind of go towards something to get that inspiration? Is it, I mean, it's probably different in every film, but like, do you like to talk with your director? Do you like to wait for that first cut? Do you like to, if you can, or fortunate enough, read the script if you're that yeah. early, on early that? that early, yeah, so. yeah, you know, with this, with, with this particular show, like, like we talked about this, I got, I got the, the original, uh, you know, demo clip that we put right. together, the proof of concept, um, where that very first initial uh, motif came out, came out about. But usually, I do love to get the scripts ahead of time. Yeah. Because that gives me kind of an idea of, of the arc of the story, where things are going, you know, the main characters are, and, you know, what emotional um, direction this is going to take. Uh, and, and try to read between the lines, too, and see what is not really being said on the page that might require some additional assistance musically, you mm -hmm. know? What can I add to it? Uh, things like that. So yeah. that's kind of starts getting the wheels turning. And with that in mind, a lot of times I'll go on the piano and I'll start playing, just kind of free flow, yeah. you know, train of thought, just see what happens, you know? Uh, uh, and I'll, often I'll have a recorder with me, mostly my phone. Yeah. And, you know, whenever it's like, oh, that's kind of cool, I'll just play it again and record it, you know, and maybe I can build something out of that. You right, know? So that, right. a, a lot of the times it happens like that. Sometimes I'll be in the car driving and I'm on a mental, you know, I'll be thinking about the script or the story or a character and, and this, this thing comes into my head and I'll like, oh, I got it. I'll hum it on my phone. Right. Yeah. And Which I've, I've noticed a lot of composers are telling me that they keep their phone, they'll hum it really quickly oh, yeah, on their phone. Yeah. It's great for capturing yeah, those I'll ideas. Phone. It's got <laughs> different clips of stuff <laughs> that I've just thrown in there. Yeah. And, you know, it's amazing, you know, because sometimes when you're not thinking specifically in musical terms, those things come to mind. Yeah. You know, and I don't think if it's a minor key or if it's a, you know, this particular progression, I just kind of like, oh, this is a cool melody. Let me put it down. Right. right. And then when I go into the piano, it's like work out the chords that go with it. It's like, oh, that's cool. You know, it's exciting. Yeah. Um, because, you know, what you latch on to as, you know, when it's when it's a thematic score, you know, the melody obviously is the most important part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's the first thing that kind of evolves. Now, um, I was going to go someplace else here, and I, I'm kind of spacing on it. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, we're, but, uh, we're talking a lot, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah but so, I mean, in order to... Do you need... Oh, do, do, oh yeah, go I, ahead, sorry. I remember what I was going to say. For Seis Manos, one of the things that was really important for me is to really get the Chinese element right. Right. And because that was a particular style that I had not uh, approached in the past, you know, I hadn't had the opportunity to really explore that. And so what I did is, you know, I researched a lot of the culture, I researched a lot of instrumentation, and I was really drawn by the Gujang harp, mm. which is a which is a horizontal harp that's tuned to the pentatonic scale, and it's a very traditional ancient uh, instrument that comes from China originally, yeah. literally ancient. And so I acquired one to just to try it and play it and. And I, noodling on that uh, was the inspiration for a lot of the Chinese-influenced uh, 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 themes in the show. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. yeah, because I feel like Chinese music is always represented, usually in Western films, almost stereotypically, you know, right. sometimes. So it's just almost like gimmicky. Right. Or using it for just a gimmick thing. But the fact that you really incorporated the culture into this and mixed it in and wove it traditionally, right. that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so when you need to refresh when you need to take a break and kind of get ideas what are some things or hobbies i guess you like to do away from music that kind of that re replenish the soul well funny you should ask uh i do a lot of bikram yoga okay uh you know for me it's kind of important to do something outside of the studio yeah because i think uh, people forget that you guys are in here for hours and hours and hours and you know you have to manage your family time and all that and it becomes so complicated of course right. and also take care of your own mental health that's a right. big part of it exactly so. so that's what Bikram Yoga that it gives to me. It, it gives me a, uh, a way for me to, first of all, stay in shape, because mm -hmm. that's important, uh, and also to keep my mind kind of, you know, I walk into the studio, with all, I mean, into the, into the yoga studio. Uh, the studio <laughs> different like, studio. Different studio. Uh, I walk into the yoga studio uh, with all these worries and all these concerns and all these, you know, anxieties, and then 
after going there for a half, an hour and a half at you know 140 degrees and uh, you know 50 percent humidity, yeah. <laughs> doing all these exercises, you know, I'm like over there just kind of like, what was I worried about? This is awesome, you know, and and it kind of resets my my uh, my center point. Yeah, I get back to center uh, after having done that, and you know, sometimes I forget to go, or sometimes I don't have time to go, and I feel it. I feel it. It does affect me. Yeah. Yeah. So and. Kind of going, we're jumping on a bit, jumping around a bit, but um, going back to kind of working and just kind of your general approach. There's always a quote. I'm going to go quote Mr. Robert Rodriguez uh, that always sticks with me from Rebel Without a Crew, and I remembered it my entire life since I read it. Is I don't fear failure. I just feel fear failure in front of other people. And uh-huh. it always that always stuck with me. And I'm always and as a composer, you're constantly either facing you know approval or rejection or everything. Do you get nervous when you have to present something in front of a director? Or do yeah. you get nervous when you have to pr- pitch to a producer or anything? I mean, how do you handle fear of rejection? Do you have fear of rejection or do you just, you know? Well, I think, I think fear is part of the process. Yeah. You know? But I think, I think once you accept that, once you know that it's like, yeah, I'm going to have anxiety, it's, you know, just know that you're going to go there and not try to, you know, get rid of it. Yeah. You know, and just accept it as part of the process, then, you know, it becomes easier to get, you know, you know I'm just going to walk through it and do it. Right? Yeah. Um, and what I've also learned is that rejection is not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's part you know? of the process. Yeah. I've, I've, there's so many times that I've like, oh, I lost this project, and I felt like, oh, I'm a failure. Nobody likes me. I'm never going to work again, right? Only to find out, you know, two, three weeks later, or a month later, that I got another gig that was way better. Yeah. Right? And I'm, I'm much better suited for it than right. the one that I didn't match. You know. Yeah. And I'm coming to the philosophical perspective that if it does if it's not meant to be it's not going to work out and mm-hmm. if it's if it's meant to be it will and so you don't want to work with people that the nuts you don't necessarily vibe with right true yeah so so i fear i, I see i see rejection as a gift now yeah right? well this was not, not going to work out yeah. so i'm going to let that one go yeah and let's see what's next right <laughs> right yeah. so to to kind of wrap up uh you mentioned that you started in filmmaking and you wanted to be a filmmaker if today if you could choose on a feature film set right now to be any role besides the composer, whether it's a director, whether it's a costume designer, stuntman, whatever, what would you pick? <laughs> well, I, I think... What's your passion? <laughs> uh, I would say, well, directing, yeah. Directing, and, and, yeah. And, you know, because producing is very similar to directing. Producing yes. music. Producing yeah. music is very similar to directing. And I've done a lot of production, a lot of records. Uh, you know, where you're actually basically directing the singers or the players exactly. to play a certain way and yeah. orchestrating basically what's, you know, your vision of what the, the track is supposed to sound like. Yeah. So in a way, it's very similar to directing, you know, directing actors or directing singers. You know, you're talking with creative people and trying to get the best performance out of them. Yeah. So for me, it feels natural. Um, I also would say second to that, immediately second, or very close second, we cinematographer. Because mm. I love framing, I love shooting. It's a lot of fun. You, you mentioned know, you paint and everything, so part, yeah, yeah. Painting, so yeah. I mean, you're visual too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, all of that. So, yeah. well, uh, that's a fantastic answer, uh, uh, Carl. Thank you so much again for sitting down. Yeah, uh, thank think, you for having me and for let me pick your brain. And congratulations on Seis Manos. I think thank it's you. a fantastic project and it's just that. original and just kind of like it's going to hopefully come out there and just kind of give people good like. I hope kind so. Of, yeah. <laughs> I, hope, I hope people you know find it because I think once people see it, they'll like it. You know. Yeah, and it'll be on Netflix, so hopefully people will be able to reach it easily. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, cheers again. Thank you. Appreciate it, Kai. Great to talk to you. <laughs>